Welcome back to What You'll Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are doing The Laws of Human Nature again, because the book's so good. We've broken up into two episodes, and there was so much good stuff in there, we couldn't dram it into just a standalone 20 to 30 yeah. minute episode. There's no way of doing that. It's become both of our number one books of all time now. Robert Greene, he's taken two decades of research to pull this all together. Uh, we're covering six of the eight, uh, six of the 18 laws across these two episodes. And as you can tell, they're bloody long episodes as they are. And they're so, it's such deep punches to the face about human nature, about what do people do and why, analyzing yourself and analyzing those around you. So you don't have to have listened to part one to be able to listen to this. They're both standalone episodes analyzing different aspects of human nature. Chapter 3. See through people's masks. The law of role-playing. People tend to wear the mask that shows them off in the best possible light. Humble, confident, diligent. They say the right things, smile and seem interested in our ideas. They learn to conceal their insecurities and envy. If we take this appearance for reality, we never really know their true feelings and on occasion we are blindsided by their sudden resistance, hostility and manipulative actions. Fortunately, the mask has cracks in it. People continually leak out their true feelings and unconscious desires in the non-verbal cues they cannot completely control, like facial expressions, vocal inflections, tensions in the body and nervous gestures. You must master this language by transforming yourself into a superior reader of men and women. Armed with this knowledge, you can take the proper defensive measures. On the other hand, since appearances are what people judge you by, you must learn how to present the best front and play your role to the maximum effect. We humans, we're the preeminent social animal on the planet. We depend on communication. We socialize with other people of our species and we require others for our survival and for our success. But about 65% of this communication is nonverbal and most average people who aren't students of human nature only pick up about 5% of that 65% of communication. So these nonverbal cues can tell us things that people are trying to emphasize with their words, the subtext of their messages, or if they're saying one thing but their body is telling you another, that's what we really want to learn to work out what's going on there. Imagine, for instance, that you just met someone and by paying close attention to the nonverbal cues they emit, you can pick up their moods and mirror these moods back to them and this will get them to unconsciously relax in your presence. And as the conversation progresses, you can pick up the signs that they are responding to your gestures and they're mirroring back, which gives you license to go further and deepen the spell. In this way, you can build rapport and a valuable ally. Yeah. And at the same time, conversely to building rapport is that if you could just meet someone and quickly pick up any signs of hostility towards you, then you know like, that you've got to tread carefully in that interaction. So you've got to be able to see through these fake tight smiles, pick up the flashes of irritation that, that shoot across their face. And really, it's about that everybody has these masks to be social, to get along with other people. But as Green says, there's cracks in the mask that reveal people's true feelings towards you underneath all that. Yeah, we've, all, we've got a mask in different situations in life. So say if you become an executive or a professor or a bartender, you must play the part, the mask that you've been mm. given. I mean, if you go on the other end of the spectrum, imagine a person who never develops these acting skills, right? 
So their face instantly grimaces when he dislikes what you say or cannot surpass a yawn when you fail to entertain him. So who always speaks his mind, who completely goes his own way and his own ideas and style and who acts the same whether he's talking with a boss or with a child. I mean, we can all, like myself sometimes, claim the moral high ground (laughs) and think that you're above uh, putting on these masks and doing all this acting, but we really always do it in everyday life. And again, it's just becoming conscious of it and then being able to optimize to become better at it and then you can actually become more effective at life in general. Nice. So he says our task here is twofold. Now, like how in the in the book, he sets you up with the story and then he says your task as a student of human nature. So part one of our task here is that we have to understand and just accept the theatrical quality of life. We can't take the moral high ground and just say we shouldn't be playing these games and putting on these masks. It's an, it's an inevitability. It's unavoidable realize that this is what's going on and you better be a part of it or you're going to lose. Mm. The second thing, you must not be so naive and mistake people's appearance for reality. You are not blindsided by people's acting skill. Just understand that they've got a mask on in certain situations and they're playing a certain role rather than um, showing exactly how they're feeling. Mm. So this is where all the nonverbal communication comes into it. Once you become a master decoder of their true feelings, um, you can become much more superior and really understand everyone's motivations. Yeah, bang on. So some of the skills that we need in order to achieve these two tasks, the first and most important is these observational skills. And Green says that when we're kids, like less than five years old, we're really observant of other people around us and what's going on. And when we start to, I guess, develop a bit of self-conscious, that attention starts to move from the external to the internal. We start looking at ourselves. We start thinking how we look to other people. We start judging ourselves and how are other people going to judge us. And we lose some of our observational skills. So rather than looking at what other people are doing, we're too focused on ourselves. So obviously the key here, we need to turn that focus back outward again. Mm. So it's not a process of learning. It's a process of remembering these skills that we used to have when we were below five years old. So there's some decoding keys he's got here, which we can use uh, you know, very practically in everyday life. So your task is to look past the distractions and become aware of those signs that people leak out automatically, revealing their true emotion deep within. One of the big cues is like he calls it either like or dislike cues. And so if, if someone just snaps and becomes hostile or resistant towards you, he says that it should never come out of the blue because there would have been signs prior to that one big incident that would have tipped you off to say that maybe this person doesn't like you quite as much as you think or maybe there's a bit of underlying hostility there. When we're around them, most often we can actually just feel something around this person It's not quite right and a lot of the time we ignore this feeling but you must learn to actually recognize and trust these intuitive responses because usually these are the best clues if someone really is full of shit and they actually don't like you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the, the most obvious would be like you say something and they roll their eyes. But as we said, most people have realized that you can't be just doing that willy-nilly so they learn to hide it. But Green says there's these little micro expressions that inevitably, inevitably leak out. So one is like they might squint their eyes ever so slightly at something you said or they might purse their lips or they might have this stiff neck or torso or when you're sitting across from someone maybe they've got their feet turned so that they're not pointing directly at you he says that if the feet are turned away from you that's definitely a bad sign and once you got the information that someone's very hostile toward you right now you can start 
utilizing some some strategic options to maneuver around them. You can even lay a trap for them. There's Ooh. a Machiavellian one for you, mate. Oh, yes. So you can intentionally stir hostility by goading them into aggressive action. And in the long run, this will embarrass them. Yeah, mate, that's some deep power moves. I reckon I'll have to try a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> Another one. You won't like this one as much. It's a bit more friendly. You can work doubly hard to neutralize their dislike of you. And even win them over through a big charm offensive. Yeah. He says, oh, you can obviously, if these aren't working, the obvious thing is to create a bit of distance. You know, it's either not working on a project with them or if it's, you know, firing them is one extreme or not hiring them or just reducing all of your interactions with them. Because if if it's past the point of no return and you're not getting anywhere with them, then it's better just not to associate with them. Another really good cue that you can use for everyday life is the fake versus the genuine smile. Yeah, he says that there's a big difference between a fake smile and a, a genuine smile. Most people can put on a fake smile if they know that it's socially unacceptable not to smile, to laugh at the boss's joke or something and put on a bit of a fake smile, but there's ways we can see through it. Mm. The genuine smile, what that will do, it will affect the muscles around the eyes and then the cheeks will point upwards. Mm. So it's not a genuine smile if there's no change in the cheeks and then the eyes. Yeah, the eyes are that big giveaway for the eyes sort of crease up a little bit. That's a good giveaway that's a, a genuine smile. If you're just seeing mouth movement and no eye action, then they're yeah, full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit of eye movement there, mate. That giggle. Yeah, good. Yeah, I just noticed that. It's interesting. <laughs> it was a genuine, mate. I wasn't faking it. So you never the- know with you anymore. <laughs> never know with you anymore. <laughs> so that's like that's identifying in other people. And he says that the next uh, level beyond this then is he calls it the art of impression management. So that's, recognizing that you're going to let these things leak out and how can you best mitigate those and sort of hide your things that you already try to hide even better. Mm, It's all about the role playing here. And a lot of people have negative connotations with role playing. Well, they contrast it, say, with authenticity. And a person who is truly authentic doesn't need to play a role in life because they're just being themselves all day, every day and so forth. Yeah, but... Well, this concept has value in our friendships and intimate mm. relationships where you can let your guard down and actually feel comfortable in displaying your unique qualities and your weird quirks and all that kind of stuff. But in your professional life, it's much more complicated. When it comes to a spe- specific job or a role, you have serious expectations about what is professional. Yeah. Certain certain jobs require a certain demeanor. You couldn't, just, you couldn't be a, a doctor and then come in real casual like a used car salesman trying to slowly <laughs> manipulate people or you can't on the other end of it just be super relaxed. Obviously, certain roles demand a certain demeanor and you have to put on that role that in order to you know have that authority or have that trust or build that rapport with people, you need to act a certain way even though you might feel inauthentic. It's just part and parcel. Yeah, when you're speaking to the client, mm. very different to when you speak to the the graduate you're teaching, which is very different to the CEO. Yes. That's the same job, but there's three different masks you might use in the same day. Yeah, good one. I like it. So in terms of putting these masks on, we need to master these nonverbal cues. Obviously, these are the giveaways. We need to really carefully monitor what uh, leaks or we're leaking out through our things. Like what are our nonverbal cues that we're giving away and how do we uh, carefully manage those. So smart social performers know how to seem likable. They flash genuine smiles. They use welcoming body language and they know when the dominance cues are required and mm. to radiate absolute confidence in what they're doing. 
and they know that certain looks are more expressive than words in conveying disdain or attraction. Definitely. And one way to do this, he says, be a method actor. So a method actor, someone who really takes on the role as being really invested in terms of that, you know, the character that they're playing. So what we should do is realize, okay, what kind of mood do I need to be in right now? How do I conjure up that mood so that then I'm emanating the right nonverbal cues because I'm actually investing myself into this actual mood that I need to be in? Yeah, it's really good. Another practical piece of advice here he's got is create the proper first impression and it's long been known that first, impos- first impressions are absolutely huge. Mm. So you probably want to engineer the best possible impression that you can make on people when the stakes are high. Yeah, you want to be, uh, in most cases, I'd say you want to be in a pretty positive mood, obviously, to radiate that kind of positivity. You want to be feeling happy to meet this person. You don't want to be thinking, oh, man, I can't, I don't want to meet this guy. He seems like a douchebag or something. You want to be thinking positively about them in order to be uh, feeling, obviously, people are going to pick up these nonverbal cues. So if you're feeling good about meeting them, they're going to feel good about meeting you. And projecting saintly qualities is also huge. So obviously, sincerity and honesty are highly valued uh, you know, all around the world. So these are some things that you want to project. A few ways you can do it. A few public confessions of your weaknesses and vulnerabilities mm. should do the trick. Yeah, <laughs> just manage them, manage them nicely. So for some reason, uh, Green says, people see signs of humility as authentic, even though people might be very, very well simulating them. So there's a lot of people who, out there who are actually just acting very humble mm. when it's, again, it's just a huge act. Yeah. And it's a very st- strategic and well-played act. I like a, something he says here. Uh, if dirty work must be done, get others to do it. So he says that you can never actually overtly play a Machiavellian leader. It only works on TV and in real life, people don't like that sort of shit. That's you, mate. That's you done for all leadership. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 14, Resist the Downward Pull of the Group, The Law of Conformity We have a side to our character that we we are generally unaware of, a social personality, a different person we become when we operate in groups of people. In group setting, we unconsciously imitate what others are saying and doing. We think differently, more concerned with fitting in and believing what others believe. We feel different emotions infected by the group mood. We are more prone to taking risks, to acting irrationally, because everyone else is. This social personality can come to dominate who we are. Listening so much to others and conforming our behavior to them, we slowly lose a sense of our uniqueness and the ability to think for ourselves. The only solution is to develop self-awareness and a superior understanding of the changes that occur in us in groups. With such intelligence, we can become superior social actors able to outwardly fit in and cooperate with others on a high level while retaining our independence and rationality. So at the start of every chapter in the book, Robert Greene has a big story to really uh, hone in on the message he's trying to deliver. And the story he's got here is the story of Chairman Mao, who really headed up the Cultural Revolution of China. And it's well known that you know hundreds of millions of people died under, under this. And it really just shows how low people can go because of the effect of the whole group and how irrational people can actually behave. So Mao explained his whole goal was to really clean the slate of people's um, thoughts. You know, people just yielded to power 
and hierarchy for real no reason. So he thought a clean sheet of paper has no blotches and so the most beautiful pictures can be painted on it. Now, to get this blank canvas, Mao would shake things up by uprooting all the old ways of thinking and by eradicating people's mindless respect for authority, right? But his strategy had one fatal flaw, and that was when people operate in large groups, they do not engage in nuanced thinking and deep analysis. They get very emotional and very excited, and that's exactly what happened. When he uprooted everything, human nature really just came out, and all this shadow side of everybody came out, and all of a sudden there was a lot of death and destruction, and nothing really productive happened. And it is just a great story about how low people can go. And the way to read such a story is to think if you were in that cultural group environment, you'd probably be doing the same thing and murdering people and so forth. Yeah, because everyone got so caught up in that group and it was almost like this self-perpetuating thing. Because the group was doing it, more people started doing it. And then when more people in the group were doing it, the group was doing it more and more and more. So, it was just this vicious cycle. And he says that maybe we think that this is just one extreme example in history and it's irrelevant because, you know, today we're not like that. We're sophisticated people in these high-tech offices and everyone's polite and civilized to each other. We think that we've got these progressive ideals, we're independent thinkers, but really it's all an illusion. He says that we very, very, very easily and often intensely get affected by the group, be that their beliefs, their behaviors, their actions, their moods. And it's very easy to get caught up in something like, you know, Chairman Mao, the full revolution or the French revolution he talks about as well, that it's very easy to get caught up and, uh, you know, infected by this group and lose your own sense of independence and rationality. Now, to resist this downward pull that the group might exert on, you need to conduct a very different experiment to what Mao did. And you need to develop the ability to detach yourselves from the group and create some mental space for some true independent thinking. Mm. So, as part of this experiment, we must not only accept human nature that there is a part of the that is getting pulled downwards by the group, but you need to work with it to see what you can make productive. Yeah, we need to realize that we are being influenced without even realizing it and that these group dynamics have a much bigger impact on us than we think. There's a quote from Eric Hoffer. I don't know who he is, but uh, he's got a good quote. He's saying that when people are free to do as they please, they usually imitate each other. And it's sort of like, uh, I think, an influence. He talks about social proof in that the more uncertain and the more new and different something is, the more we rely on what other people are doing to guide our own behavior. So, you know, if you're in a new and changing and scary world that we're in at the moment, we're going to be more influenced by what other people are doing and just blindly follow the group. Mm. So, and what's really peculiar about this force of us just following the group, it's how little we discuss or analyze it. I mean, whole groups can do ridiculous, ridiculous things and which mm. is self-perpetuating because more people do it and it's a positive feedback loop of just irrationality. But no one really steps back and, and really considers how ridiculous things yeah. can get. It's only 50 or 500 or years later that we think that was a crazy group that everyone just got caught up in this Manaya, but we don't actually realize at the time there's no one there's very few people in the group taking a step back back and thinking i'm just being influenced by the group here and we're doing some fucked up shit yeah so we lose the ability to think for ourselves and you know like all these chapters really the first step in in all of them is to really just become conscious of this part of human yeah. nature for you to actually step past it and there really is two different social forces that you need to be conscious of that are really influencing your behavior the first one is the individual effect. So, these are the things that are within you. So, 
some key things here are like the desire to fit in. So when you start a new job, you're going to be doing things to fit in as quickly and as easily as possible. There's a need to perform. There's this emotional contagion. There's this hyper certainty. That's one of your favorites as well, yeah? Yeah, hyper certainty is a really big one in the world. And again, it's just like if everyone's believing something irrational, then it's much easier to believe that, right? So this is exactly how bubbles form. Mm. If you think about Bitcoin at its heights, yeah. I know some people aren't going to like saying that. There's a lot of Bitcoin cults, cults out there. Um, the Australian housing bubble, for example, and there's bubbles all over the world that happen. But the, the thinking behind such bubbles is that if everyone else is betting and if everyone else thinks this, it must be a sure thing. Yeah. I mean, in Australia for a long time, it was like, oh, yeah, property doubles every seven to 10 years. This was a belief everyone thought, even though it's really based on complete irrationality. Yeah, we, well, the part here is that like, we don't want to miss out. We don't want to be one of the one or two people that missed this obvious bubble because everyone was betting on it. Everyone was right and it's all going up and, oh, damn it, we missed it. Whereas we can think if we do get on it and it doesn't work, well, at least you know we'll cover by thousands of other people doing the exact same thing. It wasn't just our own fault that yeah, we messed up. Exactly. Usually, you lose accountability. If you make one of your own big bets on the something um, and there's only a few who did it, you'd feel ashamed because you were such an idiot by yourself doing it. <laughs> but if it's the whole group, you're kind of shielded by everyone being an idiot so you don't have to be accountable. Yeah. So, that's the first one is the individual effect and now want to fit in with the group. And the second part of it is the group dynamics. So the group itself, like the, the group culture and the group rules and the group codes that are affecting the, the direction of the group as well. Another big one here is the, um, the group court. And he, observe, he compares this really to chimpanzees. Yeah. So Robert says, if you go to a zoo and you look at chimpanzees, there's going to be an alpha male of some sort. And then all the chimpanzees around this alpha male are going to act a little bit differently by um, fawning or imitating and just struggling to form closer ties to the alpha male. And this really dictates a lot of the behavior that happens in the chimpanzee tribe. Yeah, they completely change their behavior based on these power structures of who's got more power, who's got less power. And that completely dictates their actions. And obviously, that's obvious in chimpanzees with the alpha male. But in the human world as well, if you think of the, the CEO or the boss or the the owner or the critic or the person who's created the the author of the book, you know, the, these are the people that are the alpha males, um, you know, of the chimpanzee world in the in the human world, and they're the the powerful people that we then uh, completely mutate our behaviour towards and completely uh, change our behaviour and what we do. The more powerful the leader, the more powerful the gamesmanship. Mm. And again, this is something that we all do. If you think of you yourself and say if you're in a big corporate, the CEO walks in and sits next to you, you're going to act differently, yeah. quite differently. <laughs> like the little chimpanzee in the zoo, um, which we probably don't want to admit, we're, a lot, we're quite similar to them. Yeah, exactly. So what we do when we change our behavior, firstly, is we want to gain the attention of the leader. So we want to ingratiate ourselves with them as much as possible. So we're doing whatever we can to sort of stand out, flatter them, and get closer to the alpha of the group. The second thing, you need to really pay attention to all the other courtiers. It's mm. not just you just trying to impress the, the CEO or the business owner or the book author. It's all the other people around you. Now, if you stir up envy in all the other people around you and you're getting too close to the CEO and you're getting... Um, you're being much more brilliant than them, it's going to make them look bad. 
And what they're going to do is they're going to make you suffer death by a thousand cuts with all the gossip and all the unconscious ways people can bring people down. You've got to really carefully navigate this. It's a real Machiavellian sort of... <laughs> you love that shit. Because <laughs> you got to, on one hand, you've got to stand out to impress the alpha. But on the other hand, you can't stand out too much. Otherwise, the rest of the group's going to try and drag you back down. So, it's a, it's a real tough one to navigate, mate. Um, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Ding! That's you, mate. So, there's a... Like every chapter, he's got some real practical advice. So, your task is human nature is first, you need to be the, become the observer of yourself as you interact with groups of, ev- of any size. Mm-hmm. Begin with the assumption that you are not as merely as much the individual as you imagine. Mm-hmm. When you're around different groups, you're going to change a lot to suit the environment or the, the different effects that we've already gone through. Yeah, that's the first thing. So, we're, we're conscious of it in general. Now, we need to look at ourselves and we realize that when we're at home with our family in that group, we act a certain way. When we're with our friends, we act a certain way. When we're at work, we act a certain way. So, we've got to be ruthlessly frank with ourselves and realize our different uh, behaviors and our different beliefs are determined so strongly by the group that we're in at that time. Now, a lot of groups will be pulling you downward in the wrong direction, but it is possible to go the other way. It is possible to get an upward pull of the group. And this is the, the group he characterizes as the reality group. Yeah. So, you've got to be obviously very careful in the groups that you pick and you want to be striving towards what he calls this reality group. So, the good group is a group that gets things done, they make things, they solve problems, they generally add value to the world. It's not a destructive group like the the French Revolution or like the Chairman Mao craze that took over or like the, the Australian property bubble, which is a very <laughs> negative group. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you think about Mao, um, these... Uh, the, the social forces that were instilled on people was to something extremely destructive through death, murder, and all this kind of stuff. Mm. But you can have the same social forces and effect on people on a collective purpose to something good in the world. So, say if you're running a company of some sort and you've got a collective vision of improving something, all of a sudden the same energy and excitement that killed people can be pushed towards something good. Yeah. And again, if you're conscious of this, you can start choosing... Uh, choosing the groups where they will pull these forces from you that you can't change in the right, right directions. Yeah, you, it's it's going to be very hard for you to create a group like this. So instead, we need to be ultra conscious of what groups are we associating with? What effect are they having with us? Are they drawing us down? And if they are drawing us down, we need to find the right kind of group that is going to pull us upwards, this reality group that's going to be beneficial. So choosing the groups you associate with is super, super important. Chapter 17, Seize the Historical Moment, The Law of Generational Myopia. You are born into a generation that defines who you are more than you can imagine. Your generation wants to separate itself from the previous one and set a new tone for the world. In the process, it forms tastes, values and ways of thinking that you as an individual internalize. As you get older, these generational values and ideas tend to close you off from other points of view constraining your mind. Your task is to understand as deeply as possible this powerful influence on who you are and how you see the world. Knowing in depth the spirit of your generation and the times you live in, you will be better able to exploit the zeitgeist. You'll be the one to anticipate and set the trends that your generation hungers for. You will free your mind from the mental constraints placed on you by your generation and you will become more of the individual you imagine yourself to be with all the power that freedom will bring you. 
a culture is constantly shifting, changing, evolving. At the moment, what a lot of people are doing, we're living in a world that was built, I guess, by the past. The previous generation has built the world we currently live in. But at the same time, the present generation is molding that and shifting it towards more towards their views of what they think the world should be. So we're always living in the past, but also the present is changing that culture as well. So small changes might appear trivial, but they really uh, show some kind of underlying profound big change. Like you might think that something simple as like looser fitting clothing is just a simple choice, but really it, under, it represents an overall psychological shift in the culture. We can make a better understanding in all areas of society and begin to surmise where the world is heading by just really understanding these psychological shifts that are occurring but with the intergenerational tension that exists. Mm. That This can not only bring us great social power but it has a therapeutic calming effect as we view the events of the world with some equanimity and we're elevated above the chaos of the moment. He says that whilst there is always new different changes... He sort of identified uh, some very, very common repeated patterns throughout all of this. Like, I thought it was crazy that he says that there was a Babylonian clay tablet from 1000 BC, so over 3000 years ago, and the clay tablet had inscribed in it, today's youth is rotten, evil, godless, and lazy. It will never be what the youth used to be, and it will never be able to preserve our culture. And I think that's pretty much the sentiments that uh, the a generation above us are thinking today and man i think i'm crossing over there because i'm starting to think that about the generation below me as well <laughs> yeah. so there's definitely that's always the same thing keeps coming back 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 that the next generation they're you know lazy they're useless they're not as good as we used to be mm, exactly it's it's something that's inevitable that we just clash with the older generation no matter how close we seem to mm. feel that we are with the older generation we clash with them in some kind of way and then we approach become that generation the new kids coming coming through start clashing with you and start thinking your uh, kind of attitude and styles are irrelevant mm, it's crazy like some things that like our parents see as very serious we might think is comical or odd or ridiculous exactly so when we look at any generation what we're going to find is the leaders of that one are the ones who sense the styles and trend of their time and actually express them first. Mm. So they had less fear about breaking with the past and defying the older generation and setting the new style of things. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's pretty self-evident, but the people who are the ones who first recognize what he calls this zeitgeist, where is this generation going? The ones who first recognize that, who first call it out, who first start talking about it and acting upon it, they become the leaders of the next generation and even stronger shape where this culture is going. So the sense of what is moving and evolving in the present is like the, kind of like the collective spirit of the whole generation and it can't really be put into words. It's more of a mood or an emotional tone. He says in the book it can be really represented by the musical taste of the generation. Mm. Like the 1920s was the, this, the hardcore jazz but with that came all these sex and parties and <laughs> alcohol and so forth. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> the thing is that what's important here is that we again like like a lot of the things that we've talked about we think that we are who we are but really we are very much shaped by the generation that we were born into and he also talks about this pattern here this four different like a four, a four generational pattern and depending on which part of, of these four that you get born into completely dictates your views on the world so again this it is human nature to not just be 
who we think we are, just this individual unique person. We are really shaped by the generation that we are born into. Mate, this really blew my mind, this part of the book. And he talks about the four different generations that happen in different cycles. So again, history kind of repeats itself through one generation having certain kind of values, the next generation trying to rebel a little bit against that generation and so forth, and it is cyclical. And the first of these four generations he goes through is the revolutionaries. Yeah, so the revolutionaries make a radical break with the past. They establish new values, but there's also a fair bit of chaos and struggle that comes with that. So this is where they think, okay, it's time to make a complete change, a complete shift. There's a bit of chaos, but there's a revolution undergoing, yeah. Whole heap of chaos, flip things on its head, change a lot of shit. And then now the next generation come in and they've grown up as teens and kids in this generation of chaos, of all this this hectic stuff happening and all this kind of change. So now what they value is order, this second generation. So they are still feeling the heat of the revolution itself, having lived through it. And now they want to stabilize the world and they kind of establish conventions and dogma and kind of the security and order. No, so the third generation are the pragmatists. So they probably didn't, they weren't fully exposed to the revolution, the chaos. They probably caught the back end of it and they've lived through now the next generation which were building the order. So these pragmatists, they've lost touch with the original revolution. They've seen the order. They can build upon it now that there's a bit of order. So that's where often we see these material concerns tend to dominate. People tend to come be quite individualistic because it's not this, you know, grand revolution that's going on that they're building towards. They realize that, okay, now it's time to focus on ourselves. And now the fourth generation come in and they think that society's lost its vitality. They see all these pragmatic people, um, just so individualistic. And this fourth generation, they begin to question the values they've inherited by the previous generation and they become quite cynical of these guys and nobody knows really what to believe anymore, kind of questioning why are they so pragmatic, you know. And from that, a crisis sort of emerges and then obviously now the fourth generation are there, the next generation is going to be the revolutionaries to flip Mm. things up too much order, we need some more chaos and change things up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, the pragmatists were individual, the cynic, the cynical generation comes in and nobody knows what to believe. They don't know what's going on with, you know, the last three generations have set up for us. We're really not sure. And then after that, this period of cynicism, that's when the next revolution begins. So it's pretty crazy to think that I'd say you can definitely pick out throughout history these, this ongoing cycle of these four different uh, ideas. And again, you're inheriting the values of the generation you were born in and it might be part of these four different cycles. And uh, you can really pick it in the last couple of, or the last century that we can probably see in the generations that are really alive today. Yeah, I think post-war... Uh, things sort of obviously settled out after World War II. And then we see in the 60s, this massive revolution. So in the 60s, we see big revolution, the hippies, uh, and that's when things really started to change. (laughs) Orgies. Mushrooms, drugs, drugs, all that kind of stuff. That's a a revolution and that's that's chaos. Exactly. Now, the next generation emerging in the the 1960s, so they were... Um, so born in the 60s and then grew up with their parents being all these kind of hippies and all this kind of stuff valuing personal expression they came in and again they create a little bit of order mm. so they pulled back from the revolution and in the 70s and 80s more order came across the world yeah then we see in the, like the late 90s and early 2000s 
uh, that's when the pragmatists come in. You know, it's busy with these big corporates, big um, organizations, the stock market's booming. Everyone's out for themselves. Everyone wants to make money. Everyone wants to ride the wave of success and building up and building up and more, 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 busy, busy, busy. We're all out for ourselves to make as much money as we can and achieve personal success. So that generation reacts against the hypocrisies and impracticalities of the parents' idealism. Mm. Now, the, the, the next generation, which is the millennials, um, we really fit the ideal of the cynical in this cycle. So we're traumatized by the, the terrorism and the GFC and all these people devaluing profits and um, corporate power and so forth. And, you know, we're kind of reacting against the individualism of the previous generation. This is the kind of under, underlying simmering feeling of the millennials. Yeah, exactly, man. It's a bit of like a sense of that, you know, not liking conflict, craving security, wanting to work as a team, but really not knowing where we're going next. It feels like a revolution is about to occur. We can't say exactly what it is, but it feels like we're in the stage of, of cynicism, questioning all of these long-held beliefs over the last three generations and some big shit's about to happen over the next 20 years. It does feel like there's a lot of big shit happening. There's a lot of confusion in the world right now. There's really no denying that, I think. Mm, absolutely. I'm keen to see where this revolution takes us. So now, the rev- when the revolutionaries come through, now throughout history, sometimes the revolutionaries don't bring about long-lasting change. But sometimes the revolutionaries make huge changes and this is really um, does represent the progress of humanity. Yeah, it's almost like that within each four-generation cycle, yes, there's revolutions, but some of those revolutions are going to last not just four generations, but you know, hundreds of years beyond that. So some massive changes like say the, uh, I'm just pulling this one out of my ass, but say like the Renaissance, there's a full revolution that seems to have then kick-started the next 500 years, man, that's completely made up. But yeah, there's, there's, there's <laughs> some some revolutions are like just like a micro revolution within that generation. Some are long, long, long lasting. Absolutely. So like in every chapter, he's got some really practical advice here and says, uh, your task as a student of human nature, which you really are when you start reading this book, you must alter the attitude towards your own generation and look at the decisive events that shaped each generation. Look at the trends and the fads that suddenly sweep through, like, for, for example, the popularity of digital currencies. Yeah, and it's important, though, not to just think, oh, cryptocurrencies are going really big, so I need to buy Bitcoin. We're not taking it on face value. What we really need to do is dig a little bit deeper to find the underlying spirit. And what is this unconscious attraction towards the, the certain idea? And like one example, say, you know, the cryptocurrencies, perhaps it's a distrust of big corporations and a distrust of government and it's looking for ways to take back a bit of personal control, a bit of personal responsibility in our own lives and that's something that cryptocurrencies could provide. So rather than just thinking crypto is booming, I'm going to buy in, instead think what's this underlying, what's this underlying spirit here and perhaps it is the distrust of big corporates and people looking to take back a bit more control of their own lives. Another, you need to piece together what could be considered the zeitgeist. So in this sense, looking particularly at the relationship between two dominant generations. So you've got the early adults, about 22 to 44, and those at the end of their career, 45 to 66. And now, no matter how close these two generations feel, um, there is always an underlying tension along with resentment and envy uh, going both different ways. Yeah, so if you're a... 
a 22-year-old with a 50-year-old parent or if you're a 50-year-old with a 22-year-old kid, you realize there are some massive differences. So between those two generations of the early adults and the older adults, that's when we can really see the, the, the tension between the two generations. So we've got this tension here. Now, what you need to do with it, Green says, you need to push against the past. So you may feel the need to, do, to go out and create something new, but you're going to hesitate to go full throttle because there's this older generation and these old values um, who might judge you bringing this new kind of thing in and pushing back against them. So what some people do is they force themselves in the opposite direction and out of fear, put on the brakes. But you need to use the past and its values to push against it with force. Using anger, you may feel to help with this. And make your break as clear and sharp as possible from the older generation and shatter the conventions that they, that they hold. And now if we think back to what we said at the start of the chapter, those who are real leaders in their generations were the ones who could really understand this kind of tension and were the ones who pushed back. So don't be afraid of pushing back for whatever the, this underlying feeling is. Um, mm. Understand what it is and go hard at it. That's great, man. Yeah, it's very true that we might, being a member of a certain generation, we do feel the need to do something different. But because we are so heavily influenced by it, the people with power above us from the previous generation, we're very hesitant to actually make the changes that we feel that we should. And it is those leaders who emerge who actually do what they feel like they need to be doing and drive the culture forward. If you're coming to the end of part two, thank you so much for listening to our new number one favorite book, The Laws of Human Nature. If for some reason you listen to part two before part one, uh, that's certainly fine. Part one, we talked about chapter seven, softening people's resistance and confirming their self-opinion. So a lot about influence. We talked about chapter nine, confronting your dark side and how everybody has a shadow deep Ooh. down inside them. And we talked about chapter 10, beware the fragile ego and how envy plays an enormous part in how we respond to other people. So that if you haven't checked out part one yet, that's what we talked about. And there are some phenomenal, phenomenal chapters again. If you want to buy this book, we've got a link in the show notes that will take you to Book Depository. If you buy it from there, we'll get a 5% cut and it's actually the cheapest place you'll find on the internet anyway. Yeah, that's where we get all our books. They're almost always the cheapest and it's free delivery worldwide, so it's a no-brainer for us. 